KFBS. Sitrep with Christopher Lee. Ian, Ian Notes, thank you very much indeed. Yes, it's 4.30, I'm Christopher Lee. And listening to Sitrep on BFBS Radio 2. In the studio here, um, it's a warm and cold day. It's cold inside, warm outside. Um, and we're going to start by going straight to our menu for today. We've got a new CGS. It's announced. I wonder if he's any good. We'll ask. Why the MOD got it wrong for widows and orphans. Why General Jackson says that Iraq war was legal. Legal. Mr Clegg, I hope you're listening. Why European allies have no right to criticise United Kingdom forces. Why the mole has yet to blow his whistle. Why Mr Cameron wants Turkey inside the tent. What do they do inside the tent when they're not outside the tent? And what do KGB agents sing when they get to the pub? With me at the Sitrep Roundtable, the former Kremlin foreign policy advisor and now editor-in-chief of the satirical website Sewing Trouble International, Alexandra Nekrasov, and the former Times chief foreign correspondent, Christopher Walker. Right. Um, tell me something. Mr. Cameron, uh, Mr. Cameron's in Pakistan, yeah? In, in India. And he mm. says Pakistan has to do much more to get rid of Taliban and not let Pakistan intelligent elements back the insurgents. Pakistan official says that he's got it wrong. I mean, the truth is, isn't it, Christopher, this is real politique versus Mr Cameron uh, in uh, India. Yes, what better place to accuse the Pakistanis than when you're in their, uh, you know, main enemies, uh, hometown, as it were, India, and get a lot of brownie points and sell probably more aircraft as a result of it. But, of course, it's a risky policy because, in a way, the Pakistanis do, in fact, uh, hold the key to the future of what's going to happen in Afghanistan, and they've taken the hump very badly on this, but all the background briefing since that remark was broadcast. By the way, very interesting, it followed quite intimate talks between uh, Mr Cameron and President Barack Obama. Um, there's no, it, it was no mistake. It was no gaffe. It's been made clear from all the political correspondents and the officials that he intended to make this remark. He knew exactly what he was doing, and it reflects a lot of anger. I mean, it's pretty well an open secret that the Pakistani intelligence services founded the Taliban. They were asked to do it by uh, the Americans so that they could help get rid of the Russians. The CIA helped so them, Some it? of them have still got some fairly good chums inside. Uh, Alexander? Well, I think it's, it's, you know, this ghost of those years when the Americans were financing the Mujahideen, I mean, it's coming back to haunt everybody, doesn't it? And uh, uh, as regards Cameron and his statements, I mean, he was reading from the American script, if you look at it, and uh, um, I think Chris was quite right to point out when they had this meeting with uh, President Obama, he did change, you know, many of his, of his statements became mm. very pro-American, didn't mm. they? And uh, I think, in a sense, what it says, I think some of the Russian commentators I've spoken to today, actually, uh, told me that it's probably a signal that Cameron is turning his back on Afghanistan war, that I think he's, yeah. he's viewing it as basically a, a, a foregone conclusion. And I think it might actually uh, result in the troops pull, pull, starting to pull out much earlier than everybody thinks. Okay. Yeah, every well, sign's pointing to that. Yeah. I mean, it's the absolute lead story in our main political magazine, The Spectator, this week, that it's, he's washed his hands of it. Uh, he started off quite keen when he came in, and everything he's done since he became Prime Minister indicates that he's, he, he just, just can't So number, t- number 10's written off Afghanistan. 
as as a, a winnable war. Yeah. Okay. Listen, the next head of the army has just been announced today. He's the current commander in chief, land forces, General Sir Peter Wall. Presumably, you'll have uh, considerable interest in what uh, uh, in what you two guys are saying that the prime minister's written off Afghanistan. On the line, the Guardian's defence and security editor, Richard Norton Taylor. Richard, um, I mean, Peter Wall, you probably know the, the, the general. Is he going to be any good? Yes. He's going to be very good, I think. He's a very straight-talking person. He talks truth unto power. He told the Chilcot inquiry into the invasion of Iraq that uh, that uh, did uh, the government at the time have a clue what the, or, or did organise the task in Iraq, and he said no. And they and, and he told the uh, ministers frankly, as he put it, um, and he gets on well with uh, David Richards, his the current head of the army, who will be chief of defence staff in the autumn. And um, interestingly, they brought in Lieutenant uh, General Sir Nick Parker, now deputy head in Afghanistan, to be uh, commander in chief land forces, which Peter Wall was. Yeah. Um, and 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 he was going to he was due to go to be deputy sacco in, in Brussels or in Belgium. And uh, that's a non-job, isn't it? Coup for, that was a coup to, to bring him back to to, to to Britain. Yeah, well, he wouldn't want to do that job, would he? Well, no, probably not. No, no. Anyway, Peter Peter Wall is a straight talking guy. He doesn't suffer fools gladly, but he's a confident fellow. Yeah. To put it mildly, yeah. and a big and a big man, a bear of a man, really. <laughs> Tell me, um, you're at the Chilcot, you're at Chilcot this week. Um, the two generals, um, Mike yes. Jackson and Richard Dannett, they were both pretty blunt, weren't they? I was quite interested in in the way that General Dannett, uh, who was covering everything from bad planning to the tragedy of widows and orphans. Uh, from both wars, and he said, made a very good point, he said, why is it the MOD refused to pay families legal costs at inquests? It's yeah. not the sort of thing people were looking to hear, but it made a big impact. Yeah, well, I think um, the inquiry was struck by what uh, members of the families have told them, uh, uh, the Reid families have told them, actually, um, as well as Bob Ainsworth, the outgoing Defence Secretary, who, who made a point about how awful it was and how we learned lessons very slowly, mainly because of the slowness in the uh, organising and giving evidence and giving the information to families uh, before inquests and so on. And uh, both, yes, uh, Jackson and uh, D- Dannett, who's, who's, who otherwise were very different in their evidence and in their, in their tone of the evidence they gave, were, were both at one on this one and uh, lessons had to be learned. Uh, it's interesting, of course, uh, that General uh, Jackson, as he was expected to do, I suppose, said he believed that if you looked at the UN Resolution 687, I think it was, that yeah. uh, the, the cover the ceasefire of the first uh, Iraq war, yes. he said going to war in the second of uh, the Gulf War was a legal proposition. Was, was illegal? Was, it, was, was legal. Lawful. Yeah, lawful. Yeah, exactly, indeed. And, um, uh, yes, he, he has said that. I and mean, he, he did some homework himself, so he said he went back through all things. And he always has been very, pretty much pro uh, the uh, intervention in Iraq. And, and in spite of his, how do I put this, in spite of his, I and mean, he, he, he tends to, a lot of people say they're disappointed by what he says when they hear him in some formal occasions, like in the Chilcot inquiry yesterday, um, because of his reputation, I suppose, being a sort of, also a straight talker and his sort of rather swashbuckling image. But he, he is a very sort of pragmatic person, and the much more damning evidence was given by the rather, in the rather sort of hushed, if you like, um, uh, tones of, of General Dannett than the husky, more muscular tones, like that, that way of, of, uh, of General Jackson. Tuesday, uh, Dr. Hans Blix, who was the United Nations uh, arms uh, yeah. looker, 
he says, uh, some of the things Hans he Blix, said, yeah. Hans Blix, Hans Blix was basically saying, listen, uh, up until September before the war started, I had my doubts about uh, um, WND. I thought it was possible that Saddam had them. But by the time we got just the war, I knew they hadn't. But Tony Blair yeah. wouldn't listen. Yes. Um, he said Tony Blair hadn't listened. I mean, I think one of the... He, didn't, he wasn't really brought out on this. So uh, Sir Roderick Lyne, the former ambassador to, to, to Moscow, who was by far the most decisive questioner in the, in the, on the Chilcot, Panel did ask him this question, and Blix has sometimes been criticised for this. When he came, uh, uh, just before the war, in his final statement to the UN Security Council, um, he wasn't robust enough about insisting that the UN inspectors should be, weapons inspectors should be given more time. He said something like, how long would it take? He said, well, it, will, it, it won't take weeks, it won't take years, it would take months. And people thought it was rather a wet re response and criticised him for that. But, but nevertheless, he, he gave quite a sort of what we know, I think, is his line, that the the war actually, as he put it, um, his firm view, the war, the invasion was uh, illegal. Still a lot of the questions that, uh, that the, the panel might, the, the inquiry might have been asking um, Tony Blair if they could have got him back, but they can't now, can they, because this is the last they, week of well, public they, evidence. They, they, they can bring him back, actually, if they want to ask him about some specific things, about why he didn't ask for legal advice earlier and things like that. I mean, it, it, they may bring him back in a private session, actually. Right. But now we've right, got... Yeah. Yeah, tomorrow we've got the then Deputy Prime Minister, now my Lord uh, Prescott. Lord what's he going to say, do you think? Well, it's going to be interesting because... Um, I mean, it, it will be interesting because we have no idea what he thought, really, uh, of, of the... Of the uh, presuming he'll be loyal to his former boss, Tony Blair. Um, one never know, knows quite because uh, we've seen rather some surprising, the honest um, evidence from... Uh, where witnesses have relieved their sort of built-up frustrations, really. But um, it'll be interesting what Prescott says. I think he will basically won't come out with any rabbits or any surprises, though. OK. Uh, Richard Norton-Taylor, thank you very much indeed. Um, Christopher Walker, um, Chilcott has brought out and will bring out uh, even more historical facts that will make the report must-reading for so many people. Um, but it really has been nothing more in the public's mind than the trial of Tony Blair. Uh, guilty as charged? Yes, I think so. Though the fact he's faded so much out of public life, um, apart, you know, he did make that fleeting appearance and then uh, he, he went away. Has made, uh, I wouldn't say it is. I know he, as Alexander might say of other things, his ghost sort of haunts the rather boring room where this uh, mm. mundane hearing takes place, but it's not sort of fully portrayed on the back wall because um, his name doesn't come up enough. And I don't know if it's going to take these um, legal judgments at the end. I think that was a very interesting point Richard Norton Taylor made, that they may have to come back to answer the one killer Tony Blair question might have to. in private. Mm. That is, you know, he knew it was illegal. His own attorney general had told him so, so he was told to go back and do his homework and change his essay. Um, it's, it's looking interesting, and I think there's a point that we haven't taken enough notice of yet is on September the 13th. It's the closing date for the legal submissions from abroad. Anybody, to, any lawyer? Anybody, even I believe you and I have we got a legal degree. 3,000 words maximum. Yes. Uh, 3,000 words maximum. 
and they can all be made public. I think that should make some very interesting, but it will, of course, be reading. I mean, it won't be... I don't think anybody's going to read them out, though I don't know the full procedure. Yeah, but they'll be entered into the record. And oh, absolutely. Some of the stuff that's been entered into the record, for example, the 2nd of March 2002, the letter from the, the then deputy director of MI5 um, uh, saying there is no intelligence that suggests um, that we are threatened at all. That is a remarkable letter to publish, isn't it? I mean, it's the sort of thing that you yes. hope to have leaked. Yes. I mean, this, I think this report, the whole thing is going to hang on how strongly it's put together because there has been a rather weakness of questioning apart from Sir Roderick Lyon, the former ambassador. Well, he's been pretty, pretty slow as well, isn't it? I mean, well, he, he, compared he, with the others, he's a sprinter. But um, maybe the end result will be the way it's presented and written will be more damning than the daily slog, slog, slog of evidence. But I'm actually slightly amazed that it's still keeping us fairly close to our seats. Well, it's the, it's uh, the witnesses. I mean, the witnesses yes. are doing it. Tell me, um, whistleblowing, and we're going to talk about it in a, in a, in a couple of minutes, about the 90,000 uh, or so Afghan whistleblowing documents. Um, but, Alexandra, it's, there's a sense that somebody has still got the hidden documents somewhere especially on the legality of this whole thing, somebody's going to whistleblow them, because that's what happens nowadays, isn't it? Well, there is a feeling, yes, that you need some juicy revelation suddenly coming out of somewhere, as Americans call it, smoking gun. Yeah. And, and I, I, I've spoken to some people, and they were saying to me, this is, this is something that can actually change everything completely, especially as there's a new government now in place, and Chilcot is not under that great pressure as before, so he can, you know, do... And he'll go to the House of Lords on this, he's all right. Yeah, I mean, he doesn't really need to worry. So, yes, I think a mall is, you're, you're right. I mean, we need really somebody, a whistleblower, to come out of the dark. OK. Listen, uh, whistleblowing, I mean, he's certainly not one, but uh, uh, from the Department of Peace Studies at the University of Bradford, Professor Paul Rogers. Uh, Paul, I mean, you haven't gone through the 90,000 or so documents um, on the Afghan, uh, Afghanistan war, um, but it is a remarkable bit of whistleblowing, and yet... I didn't actually learn very much from them, the ones I saw. No, it, it puts a huge amount of detail on. I think there are several things which are interesting. Obviously, the Pakistani connection, um, the number of civilian casualties, the, the fact that the Taliban had access to at least some, maybe a small number of old surface-to-air missiles, most of which didn't work, but some which did. But I suppose the, the real thing is so many small reports from individual units and forward operating posts under very heavy pressure. Uh, and, and that, I think, gives you a much greater feel of the war. It's the kind of thing that one does pick up when you talk to people who recently come back, uh, you know, informally, not in any formal surroundings. history and wider students of politics because of the nature of the war and its worldwide implications. What is remarkable is that we've had, we, I mean, if you go back to the Pentagon Papers in Vietnam, um, we've had sort of big leaks before, and there's part of me which, which would suggest 
Listen, um, I could be very careful what I say in reports and documents because somebody may leak them, especially now there's email, which there wasn't, of course, at the time, the Pentagon documents. It doesn't, it doesn't sort of stop people writing the most uh, sort of stark reports on what they believe have happened. No, it doesn't, and I think this is a reflection of what people in the field who are under very heavy pressure feel that they ought to write, and quite often it's quite junior officers who are writing it sort of as it is uh, because of their concern with their own men. There's one very big difference between the Pentagon Papers and these leaks. The Pentagon Papers were about sort of higher-level war planning and strategy. Um, these, these leaks are not that. We're not at the heart of the strategy, what the most senior people were thinking. But on the other hand, the sheer number of them basically brings together a kind of feel for the war, which in some ways the, the, the big strategic planning documents don't do. This is as it has happened. Uh, and you really get a much clearer picture of what one suspected, but in a sense this is all fleshed out now. And the other part of it, of course, is the reminder that this, uh, that we can't see Afghanistan in isolation. The key to the whole of Afghanistan is really Pakistan. Very much so, and the long-term Pakistani fear of Indian power. The biggest thing that the Pakistanis are worried about now is the growing influence of India in Afghanistan. It's the, some th the one thing which they're almost paranoid about, and it goes a long way to explaining why the ISI has had such long connections with the, I with the Taliban in, in particular and, and the Pashtun communities in general. Pentagon is at war on two fronts at the moment, yeah. uh, um, um, but a third one just sitting there waiting to happen, Iran. Yes, uh, although there have been various reports, a very interesting piece by the well-informed Joe Klein in Time magazine a week or so ago, that there is now almost a dusting off of plans for a possible intervention against Iran. I think realistically that the United States is very unlikely to do anything major under Obama. I think Israel is very different, uh, and I think there is a real possibility given uh, their belief that there's an existential threat, or there could be, and the nature of the current Israeli government. I think there is a risk that uh, if there isn't any kind of progress by other means, at some time in the next 6 to 12 months there would be an Israeli military strike. And they do have the equipment now, the, the planes, the tankers and the rest to do it in a way they didn't have even four years ago. And I'm not looking for something for the British forces to do, because after all, if you listen to General Dannett, um, uh, at the Chilcot Inquiry this week, you know they're, they're stretched as, as, as ever. But if there were to be a strike on Iran, um, the British couldn't just sort of stand and say, oh, it's nothing to do with us. I think the British would be extremely cautious about any kind of involvement. I mean, if it was an Israeli attack, and if uh, the Iranians responded uh, in the Gulf in some way, I think you might have British forces uh, in a very defensive role. The real issue, as far as Britain is concerned, is if there was a strike on Iran, if it escalated and brought the Americans in, then the US would make a great deal of use of Diego Garcia, which, of course, is British sovereign territory. And so Britain would be a part of any escalating war, come what may. But I think that's we're still a long way from that. And my own view is that if there was an Israeli strike, that does not mean that the Iranians would immediately escalate it in order to bring the Americans in. I don't think they themselves would want that. Paul Rogers, thank you very much indeed. Um, staying in that region, um, uh, Alexander, um, at the beginning of this week, Prime Minister, Mr Cameron, went to Turkey. 
and made a really big deal about uh, saying that Turkey must be in the European Union. I mean, why is he saying that? Why does it need to be said, apart from the fact, yet again, he's there? Well, first of all, it's the American agenda. He's again pushing the American agenda. Obama said it, and, and American officials have said it many times. They want Turkey to join the European Union. Why? Well, uh, they consider Turkey a very important ally in that region. Because it's NATO. Uh, and it's NATO, and it's, and it's all the other things. You know, it's, it's, it's all the other things, Iraq, Afghanistan, everything. And... Uh, Basically, Mr. Cameron was just, uh, you know, a mouthpiece for Obama at the time because it was it was quite odd, wasn't it? That how 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 insistent he was on that. Uh, although some people were saying, and Russian commentators, including that there, there was a lot of money on the table, you know, contracts and uh, mm. commercial links and so on. But still, it was quite unusual to hear him, you know, being that insistent. Christopher, I, I heard somebody say at um, David Cameron's press conference, um, uh, listen, if you let um, the Turks into into Europe, won't we get 73 million refugees in the southeast of England? And this is the time when you're putting a cap on things. Now there's a lot of technology, uh, uh, technical ways of doing this, and you have you don't let people in at all. Um, but that is the issue as far as general public is concerned. It's immigration. It's not the question of whether they're uh, they're a military ally that needs to be in. How to stop war by having them on our side of the tent rather than outside whiffing in. I think it's also part of a general strategy by Cameron's team to make him look really tough abroad because don't forget this uh, Turkish initiative, dead against what the French and the Germans mm. want, that last thing they want, uh, came when he'd also uh, uh, you know, called Israel's behaviour in Gaza, or likened it, the Gaza, to a prison camp, which is a, talk about a red rag to a bull, you know, to tell Israelis they're creating prison camps. It's caused an enormous stink and uh, made people think yet again what Alexander was hinting at. Is perhaps this leader who's admitted himself that Britain is the second player in the relationship with the states out, able to do things and say things that Big Daddy can't say, but Big Daddy thinks, a very useful way, because there's no doubt Obama's been getting very fed up with the Israelis um, mm. behind the scenes, but you, can ha you can't see him getting up calling uh, their policy the creation of a prison camp. But yeah. Cameron, again, I don't think there was any sign of a gaffe. This no. is something well thought out. And uh, he's got uh, Andy Coulson, his director of communications, who's well able to judge what the reaction will be. It was no surprise, was it, really? I mean, it's, it was a, quite a bombshell, but not a surprise. It's interesting that also uh, Mr Cameron said that um, people should not expect him to go around and make speeches and just sort of make niceties. If he's got mm. something to say, he's going to say it, and mm. it's going to be powerfully said. But interesting, going back to the Pakistan thing, and it is important to us, isn't it, because you know, Pakistan could be essential, the essential ally in this whole Afghanistan war. Next week, it's the Pakistan president that's coming to London. Mm. That is going to be a fascinating sort of press conference, ain't it? Mm. I, what, what's the betting of these playing against it? Oh, I've got, to, I've got a play to catch. I really can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> Alexander, that is the real politique as well, isn't it? Well, it, it brings some excitement to politics, let's face it, you know. Yeah. What would have been his visit without all this uh, scandal? Sort of? we, we bring excitement. And it is true also that everybody knows that the leaders of the Taliban fighting the war in Afghanistan 
are not in Afghanistan. They're across the border in Pakistan. Yeah. Um, and that's why they haven't been brought in. Let's go to Northern Ireland. Um, sad times this, uh, this week. On um, Tuesday night, uh, detectives in Northern Ireland from the Police Services of Northern Ireland Serious Crime Branch were investigating an alleged dissident Republican activity. Um, as a result, four men and a 16-year-old boy uh, appeared in um, Belfast yesterday charged with terrorism and firearm offences. Chris Ryder's on the line from Belfast. Um, Chris, what was this? Was this one of those things that we used to call punishment shootings? Uh, it looks like that. These people have been charged, so uh, one has to be careful. But um, uh, th this was a, a report of a punishment shooting and the police were able to intercept the, the, the team involved. They caught them in a vehicle with weapons and uh, those five people have been arrested and charged now. Um, there was another similar incident last night when a youth was wounded uh, in West Belfast. Uh, and unfortunately, there's a pattern of this uh, with great regularity now. Belfast, Londonderry and indeed in other isolated parts there have been a, a number of these things. They're all uh, activity by dissident Republicans who are trying to build their popularity in the Catholic community by taking out what they call anti-social elements in most cases as, they've always, as, they, as they used to do as they used to do or have not stopped uh, doing uh, and uh, I mean, there's a new layer now in that lots of these people are accused of being involved in drugs and there's a lot of intimidation going on as well they're, they're uh, attacking people in their homes uh, who, who they believe are involved in petty crime and drugs and that sort of thing. It's all an effort by these dissident groups to build up their, their, their popularity and their credibility within the, in the local communities. Are they doing that? Not really. Um, you know, the, the, in North Belfast, for instance, they have managed to dent Sinn Féin's influence. We saw that at the time of the riots or at, at the marches uh, on the middle of July. But um, uh, by and large, the, the Sinn Féin uh, support is holding very solid and strong. And Sinn Féin, of course, have the power of elected office to condemn them. But nevertheless, there are worrying rival factions uh, uh, of this dissident movement. And there are signs of uh, impatience among some of the younger members with the middle-aged members, the old armchair generals, as they call them. Uh, and um, the, 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 the police say that the threat level is very severe. There are concerns that their weapons have been brought into certain parts of Belfast that might be used to attack the police, and obviously the risk of it, bomb attacks along the border and indeed car bombs against military bases and things of that sort um, remain uh, uh, very severe. For example, at Ballykinner in County Down, which is one of the few remaining army bases, they've sealed off some roads around the camp uh, as an additional security measure to prevent a car bomb being introduced and causing difficulty for the, the soldiers and their families who live there. Chris Ryder, thank you very much indeed. Uh, uh, Christopher Walker, I mean, you've lived and worked in, uh, in Northern Ireland as Chief Island Correspondent for The Times. This is in the United Kingdom, this is happening. And yet, if you pick up the British newspapers, you won't read about it. No, and one reason you won't read about it is they virtually all of them closed down their offices there and are relying, and nothing wrong with local journalists, but they're not given the prominence and everybody's rather yawning away. But in fact, as Chris Ryder was remarking there, he didn't have time perhaps to go into it in full, but inside the continuity IRA there's been a virtual putsch and very much the hotheads are, you know, taking over. Now, they use a lot of rhetoric, but there is uh, one thing is the eye on the British mainland again. Right. Are you serious about that? I mean, we could... I mean, this is really how the provisional IRA started, didn't they? Broke away, they were considered hot dissidents. Don't worry about them. Yes. Next thing. 
and it won't be tomorrow, but it's building up slowly. And the point is, just like originally, it's not being seen here and commented about. People are looking elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah, Afghanistan. Now, listen, uh, Alexandra, your boy, Vladimir Putin. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he says he's meet, been meeting with those Russian spies who were expelled from the United States. He said they talked about life and they sang songs of... of, of <laughs> now, come on, they sang a song. We've got to go in a minute, but you're going to hear it. They sang a song... What Motherland Begins With. Now, is this the KGB uh, sort of national anthem or what? Well, it's not, actually. It, it was a title song from a television series called 17 Moments of Spring about a super, star, a super spy, a Russian a super spy who, has infiltra who had infiltrated the, the top German command. Can you sing it? Родина, с картинки в твоем букваре. С хороших и верных товарищей, живущих в соседнем дворе. And then it goes into smooth, silky soul sort of version. And um, you've I, got I, me weeping I, here. <laughs> you've got me weeping over well, the fire. Well, come on, Chris. Uh, what about other people? What, what songs would our MI6 people uh, sing? Well, there's one. Uh, you know, I think they'd be singing is "Where Have All the Honey Traps Gone?" They've gone to government cuts, every one. Then, of course, there's a real one about MI5, the Arctic Monkeys, uh, saying, and they were Gordon Brown's favourite pop group. Right. Well, my, our, our favourite pop group, of course, is Nekrasov here, uh, who's <laughs> going to sing us out, Alexander Nekrasov and Chris Walken. Thank you very much. <laughs> We're going to be back at the same time next week at 4.30pm UK time. I'm Christopher Lee. Mary's in the hut. So is Nekrasov. Again, sing us out on that. С чего начинается родина? С картинки в твоем букваре. Sit with Christopher Lee.